It's time to redefine reality. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Carlos Kajina is our technical producer, and Ryan White is our live stream producer. Please take a moment and subscribe to the YouTube channel, Strange Planet, and the Rumble channel, Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, if you haven't already done so. Coming up next week on the program, Whitley Streber. Whitley is a noted contactee and an abductee. He's the author of over 30 best-selling books, including Communion and Superstorm, co-authored with the late Art Bell. I'm also hoping to have U.S. Attorney John O'Connor on the program next week to discuss the investigation, ongoing investigation of Special Counsel John Durham into the 2016 Hillary Clinton campaign and Hillary's role in spying on the Trump campaign and President Trump himself. This is not going away. It's starting to heat up again. You'll find out why. Durham has been quiet for a while, but he's really starting to connect the dots. And of course, the mainstream media is keeping very quiet. Remember this exchange, President Trump on 60 Minutes with Leslie Stahl? The biggest scandal was when they spied on my campaign. They spied on my well, campaign, There's Leslie. no real evidence of that. Of course there is. No. It's all over the place. Leslie, Sir, they spied on my campaign and they got I, caught. Can I say something? You know, this is 60 Minutes. And we can't put on things we can't verify. No, you won't put it on because it's bad for Biden. We can't Look, put on things we can't verify. Leslie, they spied and, on my campaign. Well, we can't verify It's been totally that. verified. No. It's been, just go down and get the papers. They spied on my campaign. They got caught. No. And then they went much further than that, and they got caught. And you will see that, Leslie, and you know that, but you just don't want to no. put it on the air. As a matter of fact, I don't know that. Okay. Later this hour... I'll speak with the former head of Alberta's Emergency Management Agency who will explain how governments across Canada did the exact opposite of what they were supposed to do in response to the pandemic. He calls it criminal negligence. David Redman will be here. He's worked with all orders of government and extensively with the private sector to develop emergency management in Alberta, Canada and North America and prior to his work with EMA. He had a 27-year career as an officer in the Canadian Armed Forces. So you'll want to be listening a little bit later this hour when Dave Redman joins me. While only rarely discussed and frequently dismissed as a mere curiosity, the mystery of the disappearance, uh, the disappearing flu is actually one of the most important events of the past two years. Unpacking this mystery provides Deep insights into the future trajectory of the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic exposes the abject failure of the vaccines to control the pandemic and puts the final nail in the coffin on futile public health measures like masks and social distancing. Get ready for more than a few surprises as you follow me on another deep dive into COVID mayhem. Julius Ruchel is author of uh, the author of Autopsy of a Pandemic, the Lies, the Gamble, and the COVID Zero Con, and this new investigative report, The False God of Central Planning, The Mysterious Reappearance of the Flu, Natural versus Vaccine-Induced Immunity, 
the inability of the vaccines to control the virus and other extraordinary lessons about the end of the pandemic. Julius, welcome. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. How are you? Great. That's a, it's a lengthy title, but very, uh, very insightful. All right. So let's begin. What, what did happen to the, uh, the seasonal flu these last two years? Well, that's one of the remarkable things about it is that I think it was around March is that it essentially just completely disappeared all around the world. And I mean, there's been lots of speculation as to whether it's being whether the, the flu is COVID, but the actual flu tests continued without stopping. Um, it's just that they, they all came back negative. And so uh, but there's a, a phenomenon in that's called viral displacement or viral interference, where when you have a, an infection with one um, virus, that it essentially blocks infections with other viruses. And so uh, that seems to be playing a huge role because it is a fairly new um, it's a, it's a novel virus. Our immune systems aren't uh, used to this thing. So it's had such a huge outsized effect on our immune systems on so many people that that viral interference effect has essentially you know, squeezed out the ability for all of these other uh, viruses that are usually part of seasonal flu season to, uh, to infect us. And why, is that, why is that important then? Okay, so it's important because, well, as you mentioned in, in your introduction, I mean, one of the things that it shows is that like the, like the masks and all of those things are not actually responsible for the disappearance of the flu because the, the flu disappeared around uh, the 30th of March. And here in Canada, the first mask recommendation didn't come in until the 20th of May and it didn't become mandatory until the, uh, I think, the 18th of July. So like the, when the health authorities are taking responsibility for that, that's not what's causing it. It's viral interference that caused that. Um, but what's interesting is when you start going through all of the different uh, countries, you can see now that the flu is starting to come back. And that shows you when and the natural antibodies that from exposure are reaching a level where the flu is no longer, where COVID is no longer able to uh, um, have such a strong effect on our, our immune systems. And that's what allows the flu then to come back into the, the you know, to start to circulate. So in countries that have high natural immunity, like Sweden, like uh, uh, South Africa, like Brazil, India, they've all got the flu back, whereas in Canada, it's not. And they're all reaching it, like once they cross around, you know, 60, 70, 80 percent of the population that has some kind of antibodies to COVID, that's when the flu comes back. And in many of those places, it's before they've even reached uh, um, any kind of high level of vaccination. Like in Sweden, deaths essentially plateaued uh, somewhere around... uh, I believe it was, uh, when did I write down here? I think it was early, like early last spring, Mar- March last year. And they've essentially stayed fairly flat ever since because that's the point where they had the high natural immunity. And now the flu is back there. And why do those countries you mentioned, Sweden, Brazil, South Africa, India, why do they, I think you mentioned Brazil, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. That's why right. do they have natural immunity? Well, the virus has been able to circulate so freely there, like the COVID virus has been able to circulate so freely that everybody has essentially been exposed to it. I mean, this is one of the, the big, uh, um, like the, the silly parts of this whole COVID debacle is everybody looks at COVID cases based on PCR tests. But when you actually do antibody tests to see who has antibodies, the vast majority of people in these countries already have been exposed to this and developed antibodies without ever developing any kind of symptoms and without going and getting a PCR test. And South Africa had relatively low vaccine uptake, as I recall. That's right, yeah. Julius Reuschel is the author of Autopsy of a Pandemic, The Lies, the Gamble, and the COVID Zero Con. He's also the author of a new investigative report titled The False God of Central Planning. Why do you call it the God of Central Planning? 
Uh, the, the, the false, false god. god. Sorry, the yeah. false god of central planning. Um, because again, the, the 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 government has essentially stepped in and claimed to be able to manage this entire pandemic and everything that surrounds it, and yet. You know, looking through, for example, when with the flu disappearance and all of these different parts that have, have featured in this piece, the government essentially has been irrelevant to managing this pandemic. And that the, the countries that are actually now faring very well, like a country like Sweden, they're, they've essentially pulled through it without doing any of these control measures that have tried to you know, control every single step of what we're allowed and not allowed to do. And yet, you know, the, you know, the flu has essentially come back because the virus has already moved through the population and their death rates are no different than neighboring countries like uh, like Germany that so try another, to control everything. So if I'm understanding this, Julius, and correct me if I'm wrong, the, yeah. the, the disappearance of the flu and then the reappearance of the flu is kind of a harbinger. So explain yes. what uh, explain again the lesson here of the reappearance of the flu. Okay, so the reappearance of the flu is essentially signaling that the uh, the COVID virus is no longer able to uh, displace these other seasonal viruses. So it's no longer having this outsized effect on our immune system that's able to block infections with these other things. So like, for example, in, in Sweden, um, the, the only difference between Sweden and Germany is that you know, they have the same variants, they have the same vaccination rates, all of those things. But the difference is that the virus is able to circulate freely. And so in Sweden, the, the uh, flu is now back and deaths from COVID are essentially flat compared to uh, a country like Germany, where they've had much higher deaths still and they don't have the high immunity and the flu is not back in Germany. And the flu returned to Sweden because uh, the Omicron uh, virus is so mild, it can no longer displace the flu. Is that the idea? It's actually, no, it's actually something different because, uh, for example, Delta also moved through Sweden and Germany at the same time. And so in Germany, Delta was fairly deadly and in Sweden, it was not. So the main difference between the two of them was that Sweden had the high natural immunity because the virus had already circulated so much. Right. And so that's where the, the, the difference here is not just that Omicron is milder, but that countries that have you know, high natural immunity, sure, they can still get infected, but it's not going to land people in the hospital or in a grave nearly as easily. OK, so what's happening in Canada? You call it a test case for Omicron. Yes, because Canada was one of the first countries where you've got a high vaccinated population that was exposed to Omicron because like in Sweden and Germany, it was still Delta when uh, when omicron was arriving in other places so you know here we've got a, a, a situation where you know is omicron mild or is omicron mild like in in south africa because they have natural immunity because our natural immunity is very very low because of our our strict measures in canada so omicron arrived here and we've seen like i mean yes the hospital rates have gone up and so have uh, deaths but not in a very large amount, considering the huge scale of people that are now getting infected with this thing. And we're also seeing that a lot of the folks that are being infected, um, like the, 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 the statistics that are coming out of the hospitals and, out of, and all of that, it's not necessarily that they're in hospital with COVID. They're actually there, and then they have a PCR test that's positive. I think Ontario said 50% of their, uh, their hospitalizations are actually incidental. They were in, admitted to be treated for something else and then have a, had a positive PCR test. So it's kind of showing, thankfully, that Omicron is mild even in populations like ours that haven't had much exposure, and not just like in South Africa or Sweden that have. 
Julius, uh, I mean, unless I'm missing something from your bio, you're not an immunologist or a virologist. You're a cattle rancher. You're an author. How is it that you were able to make this observation? I'm not reading this anywhere else. <laughs> I started writing about all this COVID stuff in the in the spring. Like I had a, a website where I was teaching uh, some you know cattle uh, uh, farming practices. Um, and so I'm used to dipping into all of this kind of stuff. I have a background in geology, so I'm, you know, I understand statistics and that sort of stuff. And so I've just been digging into the raw data. It's, I mean, I'm looking at the government's raw data here. I'm not, uh, you know, pulling all, any of these statistics off of anything else other than, you know, what's purely official put out by the statistics departments, but which is at odds with what the uh, public health officials are saying in the media. Uh, now, when we're talking about uh, COVID, you say, you know, uh, new virus, but same role it's playing, uh, particularly yes. with the elderly. We used to call pneumonia an old person's best friend because it would take them quickly and, uh, you know, usually painlessly. That's right. So it, uh, talk to me more about uh, the, the COVID's role, uh, old role as the old man's friend. If you look at the in Canada, the year over year, all cause mortality. The number of folks that have passed away is essentially the same. And so what you see then from that is that essentially the same people that would have been dying normally from influenza and other seasonal viruses in the winter are now dying from COVID. So COVID has essentially pushed out the flu and is playing that exact same role of getting people that are in nursing homes or that are near the end of their life or have extreme vulnerabilities uh, like because of pre-existing conditions. And, I mean, we see that very clearly in the epidemiology data. There's something like a thousand-fold difference in risk between somebody that's, you know, young and healthy versus somebody that's living in an old folks' home, right? So the, the, just like uh, influenza, the folks that are at risk from this thing are the folks that are already at risk from influenza and other seasonal viruses. They're folks that have immune systems that are weak and essentially shutting down at the end of life. Right. And we finally, finally, after two years, had the uh, the director of the CDC, Rochelle Walensky, uh, hide out on a, a Sunday chat show where nobody watches to finally admit uh, that uh, up to 75 percent of all COVID deaths in the United States were uh, with COVID uh, and up to four serious comorbidities. Julius Rochelle is uh, the author of Autopsy of a Pandemic, The Lies, the Gamble and the COVID Zero Con. How can people read the full report? If they come to my website at uh, www.juliusruchel.com, everything is there. All right. And we'll spell it. Uh, it's Julius. And then Ruchel is R-U-E-C-H-E-L. R-U-E-C-H-E-L. Juliusruchel.com. One of the big mistakes uh, that was made, you say, is is totally underestimating how uh, how many people were exposed to SARS-CoV-2. That's you right. give the example, actually, of white-tailed deer in the state of Iowa. Explain. It's extraordinary, actually, that the last winter, uh, I guess through the various hunters and whatnot that, are, that were harvesting deer, they started doing PCR tests to kind of get a, a survey of what the deer population, how many of them had been exposed to COVID. And 80% of them already had exposure during that one winter. I mean, it, it really shows you how quickly this virus will, you know, spread through an entire population. And yet the forests there were not f- filled with coughing and dying deer. So, again, it, the vast majority of them are just fine and were probably asymptomatic, but now have antibodies and had some kind of exposure. Okay. And so because our public health officials and politicians were unable to sort of appreciate this point, how quickly it spreads, uh, what's the takeaway then? 
The takeaway is that, you know, what should have happened last year, like in 2020, or not last year, but two years ago, is that the, the vulnerable population should have been advised to voluntarily isolate themselves for the, the first big wave that came through and allowed the rest of us who are not going to be likely to have any kind of severe outcomes to be exposed to this thing, have our, you know, asymptomatic or mild flu that, you know, it's playing the same role of, of a seasonal flu or similar to a seasonal flu virus. And then most people would have had antibodies and that would have starved the virus of hosts so that the vulnerable would have been able to get back to their lives and not have to worry about sheltering and hiding away. But instead, they've essentially been you know, trapped away from society at risk for two years because the rest of us were not able to get exposed to this thing. In other words, they did everything wrong. Exactly. And I mean, the idea of waiting for these vaccines has been insane because, as I said, like it made everybody have to wait for two years that's vulnerable. And as we're seeing now, the vaccines are actually not what's causing the, the like, I mean, look at, you know, Germany versus Sweden, where Germany is having high, had high issues with the Delta virus, despite high vaccination rates. And Sweden, which had high natural immunity, had no, no more dying anymore because they allowed the virus to circulate freely. So this, the idea of this, this uh, vaccine being the savior, the exit out of this whole entire disaster has been actually the, the cause of a huge amount of unnecessary suffering and hasn't achieved anything. Well, here's the frustrating part, Julius, and the tragic part yeah. is, is all of the 10 provinces and three territories, they had a pandemic uh, emergency pr- uh, pandemic plan in yes. place. Uh, and all of them, every single province and every territory through those perfectly good plans, which talk about things like focus protection. They talk about, um, you know, protecting the vulnerable, vulnerable, but maintaining societal cohesion and keeping things open and keeping the economy open. Uh, they were thrown out the window. Why do you suppose they did that? You know, I, I think it began with a hysteria that everybody just absolutely panicked and threw out. I mean, at, at the heart of this is the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, that when you have individual autonomy, that be pri- provides a hard limit on how far the government can go in a panic situation. But that should have been the, the last check and balance. This is, well, you can recommend things to us, but you can't take away our rights. Because the moment that you do that, you stop the, the, the discussion that would have been able to solve this, to, to sort of diffuse the panic and get people to, from different points of view to be able to speak about things. Instead, that was tossed out the window. And you know, there's this entire, you know, there's kind of an idea that's been growing more and more that the government is meant to manage everything in all of life. And they've, you know, they injected that idea into the, the management of this pandemic as well, where they tried to, you know, control everything and save the world. And in the process, they made a real hash of it. Saskatchewan has finally uh, come around. Uh, they're going to drop the mandates, all mandates by the end of February. Here in Ontario, our, uh, our premier is doubling and tripling down, uh, much like the vaccine. Uh, if you were sitting around the science table, and, you know, just spending 15 minutes with me, it's very clear to me, a cattle rancher and an author, uh, you have far more common sense uh, than any of the people sitting around the science table. What would you advise the premier to do at this point? They have to drop everything. I mean, it, ultimately, Section 1 of our Constitution says you cannot take away people's rights uh, without, uh, you know, an actual in front of a court weighing of the evidence to justify it. And that's never been done. So from a legal standpoint, this all just needs to collapse instantly. Um, but as far as the, from a management point of view, like, the rest of us need to go about our lives and the, the folks that are vulnerable need to voluntarily 
based on their own assessment of risks and priorities, be advised to shelter at home until each of like these waves last, you know, six to eight weeks at most. We're already, things are already starting to come down here now with Omicron. Like let them know, stay away from folks for, for a few more weeks and then we can all go back to our lives. And so that, you know, the focus needs to be protecting those, those that small percentage of the population that really is vulnerable because we know who they are. And I mean, they have an outsized, like, you know, a thousand times more risk than the rest of us they need to be and they already many of them are already in a nursing home behind a wall like you just have to close the the doors in many cases like in previous flu waves you actually have the option of having the the caregivers that are there live inside the nursing home so that the doors just do not open so that's how like they already have a lockdown that's permanently in place that really is enforceable by closing the door and leaving it closed so I think that's that's the, the point that has been missed by our, our health authorities that have managed us instead of the, the vulnerable. Cattle ranchers and truckers, if only you could run this country. Julius Ruchel, juliusruchel.com, R-U-E-C-H-E-L, R-U-E-C-H-E-L.com. Back to more of my conversation with Julius Ruchel after these. I call it the miracle molecule, carbon-60 or C60 from my good friends at Evo C60. I take a tablespoon every morning. It delivers more than 172 times the power of vitamin C. C60 is a known antiviral, antioxidant, antibacterial, anti-inflammatory, and it's a remedy that works. C60 Evo can slow down the aging process by reducing cellular damage. C60 Evo users consistently enjoy better sleep and wake up feeling refreshed. I sleep like a baby. I have no aches or pains. Zero. I'm 58 and I don't have a gray hair on my head. And I have boundless energy. Get your miracle molecule in a bottle. C60 from c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen Serrett. Use the coupon code EVRS at checkout and save 10%. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you have a medical concern, please contact your healthcare provider. You can become an official Patreon supporter of my work here at Strange Planet Productions by donating a monthly amount through patreon.com forward slash strange planet patreon.com forward slash strange planet there are several tiers to choose from pick which one is right for you but any monthly amount is greatly appreciated as a sign of my appreciation you can have your name mentioned on air during my weekly radio show or you could have your name included in a crawl on my youtube channel live stream you could also receive episodes of my old podcast the rock and roll twilight zone this critically acclaimed podcast produced in partnership with chris jericho is not currently available anywhere else. If you enjoy this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, you can really get behind me and my work by donating once a month at patreon.com forward slash strange planet, patreon.com forward slash strange Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. We're now crossing a zone of turbulence. Please return your seats and food trays to their upright position and make sure your carry-on luggage is safely stowed. You're about to leave everything you know behind. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Strange Planet. Julius Ruchel is uh, the author of Autopsy of a Pandemic. I'm dubbing you the Philosopher Cowboy. I hope you're okay with that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> 
Are you still an organic beef farmer? No, I, I've been uh, writing about it since I left the industry, but uh, like I've been uh, managing a website where I've been teaching uh, pasture-focused cattle farming. Ah, okay. So um, it's interesting that you bring this up because we had the announcement from Premier Jason Kenney and Scott Moe and others that they are uh, winding down the mandates. They always talk about, you know, a path to ending the mandates and a plan to end the mandates. Uh, and now, you know, at least, you know, they're, they're, they're ditching the mask mandates in Alberta, Saskatchewan. Um, but as you say, they are also normalizing, um, you know, their emergency, emergency powers and government overreach. Talk to me about that. Well, one of the, in a democracy, like the basic democracy, basically the 90% can vote the 10% into slavery. But the difference between a democracy and a liberal democracy is that the the individual rights of citizens are placed above the authority of government. So they are not negotiable by you know policies and public health uh, officials. They, they essentially, they provide a hard limit as to what uh, government can do to people without their consent. And so by uh, by normalizing that there's some kind of path back to normal, we're actually normalizing that this was okay for the government to suspend our constitutional rights for two years, despite the fact that constitutional rights have to be uh, unconditional in order for democracy to function. Uh, in fact, I believe uh, Quebec Premier Legault, uh, you know, said that it's that he will get rid of the mandates on one condition, and that is he wants those powers to remain That's so right. that it would be, in fact, much easier for him to evo- invoke some sort of emergency uh, power. Very much so. See, that's the thing is that there's, there's beyond the fact that the, like the individual rights are the uh, like essential for us each individually to manage all the, the risks that are in our own life that go beyond COVID, which, you know, we've all experienced that now where we haven't had that opportunity for two years to manage anything in our life and where somebody can take away our right, like our access to our life. But the other part of it too, is that, you know, if someone has the right to tell you, that you have to follow these mandates that violate your civil liberties. They can settle the debate with a mandate instead of uh, trying to talk to you, instead of being transparent with the data and being forced to, to confront their critics. And so I think that's like the, the, when, when the mandates rolled out in March of 2020, at that point, we saw all the debate and all the transparency that's supposed to be at the heart of our democracy like, just essentially evaporate. All of a sudden, the politicians, they could, you know, they could allow you to speak in a corner somewhere, but they could still force you to do something. So they haven't actually been forced to, to, uh, to face their critics and, and, face, and be transparent about the data that they're working off of. And the same thing goes for the scientific institutions. Like the moment that you make rights uh, conditional, the public health authorities and and the scientists haven't had to face any of the critics that are pointing out mistakes that these people are making. So individual rights are actually the, the, the cornerstone of a functioning democracy that forces everybody that participates in the system to be transparent and to engage with critics. Like it prevents people from hiding in an echo chamber because all of a sudden they have to talk to those people that don't agree with them if they want them to play along with their rules. Have you heard anything from any of the premiers when they were announcing the end to these mandates uh, to suggest that they were also willing to give up these emergency powers? Well, each one of them is talking about, you know, either Omicron is mild or they talk about the fact that, uh, you know, maybe the, the, the benefits outweigh the risks. And so they're they're kind of legitimizing that this is the path out of this. I mean, it's sort of like... Yeah, like I mean, when you when you legitimize that the, the majority can vote its way into somebody's life, it's sort of like saying, well, if if you know, my liver, my kidney, my lungs, my pancreas, etc., 
if I can save six people, then it's justified for me to be uh, put on the operating table and have them all extracted because there's a be- greater benefit to society. So that's kind of the, the legal principle that's actually being um, normalized here is that um, as long as the, the opinion poll or the technocrats and the elites say that it's reasonable, they can essentially do this to us uh, unlimited at any time. JuliusRochelle.com, J-U-L-I-U-S. R-U-E-C-H-E-L dot com. JuliusRochelle.com. His latest article uh, is a good one. And he's also the author of Autopsy of a Pandemic. And he writes in his latest article, again, liberal democracy was built around the principle that individual rights must be unconditional. In other words, they are meant to, be, to supersede the authority of government. Consequently, individual rights, such as bodily autonomy, were meant to serve as checks and balances on government, uh, on government power. They were meant to provide a hard limit to what our governments can do to us without our individual consent. If the government cannot override your rights to bend you to its will, then it will be forced to try to convince you by talking with you. That forces governments to be transparent and to engage in meaningful debate with critics. Your ability to say no and to have your choice respected is the difference between a functioning liberal democracy and authoritarian regime. So it would uh, it would it would appear, Julius, that we have lost our checks and balances. Uh, Is that because uh, our charter has proven to be practically worthless? Yeah, it's it's remarkable the way that the courts and the the politicians have essentially you know thrown out all the principles at the heart of the charter. I mean, there's they're finding ways to you know reinterpret the words in order to legitimize this, but the the principles at the heart of it are just being steamrolled left, right, and center. So, what is the problem? Is it the, what I call the weenie clause, section one? I think that's part of it. Although the weenie, like the the, the section one, the weenie clause, yeah, it's uh, it's meant to have all sorts of like there's a it's called the oak test, where in order to be able to uh, to temporarily restrict some of our rights for some kind of emergency, there needs to be a a, a public weighing of all of the evidence that to show that it's overwhelmingly in the favor of limiting the rights. And I mean, like the the oaks test is what it's called, and it's like a very burdensome process that was never done. So, I mean, technically, every single one of these mandates is illegal because they, they overruled the, the protections that are even in that section one that allows us as citizens to hold the government up to the light and say, okay, before you take our rights, show us the evidence that this is worthwhile. It's not up to the courts to simply decide that because the WHO says that it's this way, that it's okay to do this. It's not. So how do we... How do we prevent this madness from happening again? Do we need to revisit the charter and, I don't know, get rid of uh, get rid of the Section 1? Or is it the fault of activist judges? How do we prevent this? I think that it's, I mean, even the United States has, you know, they, they don't have a Section 1, and yet they still did the same thing. And so I think this is where the reality is that the public respect for the principles that are at the heart of our institution is what forces um, courts to rule in in favor of our rights, so that it, you know if the courts are caught up in like if the judges are caught up in this hysteria, they are also going to end up succumbing to it and finding ways to interpret it away. And so the, it really is a battle for the hearts and minds of you know our citizens as a whole to understand just how important it is to respect these kinds of individual rights 
if, if we want our democracy to continue to function. So like we have to make the hard choices where we have to go against our impulses to try to control our neighbors in order to maintain those checks and balances that keep us from going down these dark paths. Seems like we need serious civics courses in, in school. I mean, I know they have civics courses, but I don't know if they really instill in young people, um, you know, what a liberal democracy, a functioning liberal democracy means Very and, much so. and how we have them is hard work. And uh, we've just sort of let it slide because we've had it too easy. Um, is the remedy then only to be found perhaps at the ballot box? And we have to insist on electing provincial and federal governments uh, and hold their feet to the fire and, and, and make them promise to get rid of these emergency powers. I think that's one of the solutions, but I think it goes beyond that, that it has to, it really has to be that the, the public demands this as a, like you, we have to stick to the, like stick to these principles in everything that we do. Because if we wait until the ballot box comes along, we're back in a, in a situation where, you know, if, if the wrong party gets elected, then all of a sudden our rights are at risk. And so it actually makes it very difficult for anyone to accept the outcome of an election if your rights can be steamrolled by a party that you disagree with. The only way that a, a democracy works is that no matter who gets in power, they don't have the right to step over the line of steamrolling the individual. So I think that uh, we, we have a, a public relations battle to win on, on the ground level before we even get to the, the remedies that come through the courts and through the, the ballot box. In other, words, in other words, Julius, we need to change the culture. I mean, that is Very a long so. process. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is what's been interesting about uh, what's going on with the truckers is that it's bringing these conversations to the forefront and accelerating that on a big way. You know, whether, whether somebody's you know, right not to hear honking outweighs being able to take away access to somebody else's life because they, they disagree with the government about a vaccination or about a, a face mask. So I think that's, this is sort of accelerating that cultural evolution that needs to happen. Great article, Julius. Thank you so much. I hope you'll join us again. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. JuliusRuchel.com. Julius, J-U-L-I-U-S, Ruchel, R-U-E-C-H-E-L, R-U-E-C-H-E-L, JuliusRuchel.com. He's also the author of Autopsy of a Pandemic. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Follow Richard on Twitter at Richard Serrett. For show information, visit the website strangeplanet.ca. If you're a fan of this radio program and the Strange Planet podcast, why not show it off by wearing Strange Planet apparel or drinking from a Strange Planet mug? Check out all the great Strange Planet merch in my Strange Planet shop. Just go to the website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and click on Shop in the menu. There's a huge selection of men's and women's t-shirts. You like crop circles or the Mayan calendar? Gotcha covered. Are you into the Anunnaki? Wait till you see these designs. My favorite right now, lions do not lose sleep over the opinions of sheep. And one of our best sellers right now, Truth Gets You Crucified on the front and a passage from Matthew chapter 23 on the back. So many great t-shirt designs, I don't know where to begin. There's women's leggings and tote bags and, of course, mugs. Great gifts for family and friends who listen and love this show. My Strange Planet shop. Visit today and often. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and check it out. It's time to try the tea everyone's talking about. 
Nothing does what Life Change Tea does. They have no competition. Life Change Tea helps support a healthy body. It tastes great and leaves you feeling refreshed every day. I can't get enough of my pomegranate super tea. I brew two gallons at a time and let it steep in the fridge overnight, enough to last me the entire week. And every morning I have a 16-ounce glass of this amazing GMO non-caffeinated herbal tea. It keeps me regular by providing a gentle cleanse every day. I'm never gassy or bloated, and good health begins with a healthy gut. This pomegranate super tea is not available in any store. You need to go to getthetea.com. Go to getthetea.com. Use the code UNLIMITED, and all your orders ship for free. All of them. It's time to get your tea from getthetea.com. This is disturbing. Embalmer has been alarmed by mysterious blood clots in vaccinated people. I made indications from many different sources of a dramatic rise in the sudden onset of serious illnesses following COVID-19 vaccination. A veteran embalmer, this is in the U.S., a veteran embalmer is reporting that he and more than a dozen colleagues in the industry have been noticing strange blood clots in most of their cases. Richard Hirschman, with more than 20 years of experience in the funeral industry in Alabama, says that in mid-2021, he began noticing odd blood clots in arteries and lungs he had never seen before. In an interview with Stephen Kirsch, Hirschman said that last month he found that 65% of his cases exhibited the clots. He told Kirsch that that every one of the 15 people in the industry with whom he has spoken have observed the same alarming trend. So this interview with Stephen Kirsch, Kirsch is a Silicon Valley entrepreneur who has applied his skills in data analysis to the pandemic. And he's formed a group called the Vaccine Safety Research Foundation, and he serves as the executive director. So now I guess he's got maybe a YouTube channel and he's interviewing people, one of whom is this. Richard Hirschman, an embalmer, 20 years experience in the funeral industry. Hirschman said that with only one exception, he hasn't seen any cases in which the strange clots were seen in an unvaccinated person. The exception was an unvaccinated person who had received a transfusion. Kirsch notes the Center for Disease Control and Prevention contends that nobody has died from the COVID vaccines. But overall, Hirschman has seen the strange blood clots in more than 50 percent of his cases. And in January, uh, 37 of his 57 cases, 65% had the suspicious clots. Hirschman said that 15 peers with whom he had discussed the issue see the same phenomenon but won't speak out publicly. PolitiFact challenged Hirschman's, Hirschman's belief that the blood clots are caused by the vaccines. Fact checker Nassim Ferdowsi who has no medical experience, said she was told by an embalmer in Phoenix, Arizona, that dark clots have been found in COVID victims long before vaccinations were available. However, the clots Hirschman is observing are white fibrous material. And Kirsch pointed out that the number of COVID deaths in Houston County, Alabama, where where Richard works, is minuscule. In January, for example, there were nine recorded COVID deaths in the county. But Hirschman had 37 cases that month with the clots. If these clots were caused by COVID, it's highly likely someone would have spotted it before 2021 and done a similar video, Kirsch wrote. An embalmer alarmed by mysterious blood clots in vaccinated people. I mentioned next week on the program, Whitley Streeper will be here. Someone else I'm working on. He's been with us before. 
U.S. attorney, John O'Connor. And uh, John O'Connor was Deep Throat's lawyer, Deep Throat from Watergate, who was later identified as Mark Felt. And John O'Connor would later go on to represent Felt towards the end of his life and his family. So O'Connor, I want to get him on to talk about this. This is not getting any play in the mainstream media, not surprisingly. Special counsel John Durham, remember him? Yeah, you probably had forgotten. He's still he's still around, still keeping his head down, doing his knitting, trying to piece together this whole Russian collusion fraud and who was behind it. And Durham says he's building a case to show the technology executive with whom an indicted Democratic lawyer on the payroll of Hillary Clinton's campaign was working to build a Trump-Russia collusion narrative and they gained access to internet traffic at the White House to try and obtain dirt on former President Donald Trump. So left-wing lawyer Michael Sussman, who was indicted last year for allegedly concealing his clients, among them Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign from the FBI, when he volunteered since debunked claims of a secret back channel between the Trump organization and Russia's Alpha Bank. Remember that? And Trump went on 60 Minutes with Leslie Stahl. It said, the Clinton campaign is spying on me. And Leslie Stahl, deny, deny, deny. There's no evidence. Stop saying it. You can't say that. Durham revealed in a Friday court filing that he has evidence that Sussman's other client, dubbed Technology Executive One, but known to be former New Star Senior Vice President Rodney Joffe, exploited domain name system internet traffic at a particular health care provider, which was likely Spectrum Health, Trump Tower, Trump Central Park West Apartment Building, and the Executive Office of the President of the United States. They spied on Donald Trump as sitting President of the United States. It was all even worse than we thought, tweeted Mark Meadows, former congressman who later became Trump's White House Chief of Staff. This is huge. I mean, many of us long suspected this, but Durham is finally starting to untangle this impossible Gordian knot. Wow, this is heating up. This is getting good. All right. When we come back, David Redman, Alberta's former head of their emergency management agency, talks about how all the governments across Canada threw out their pandemic plans because of panic. And he calls it criminal negligence. That conversation is next. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Follow Richard on Twitter at Richard Serrett. For show information, visit the website strangeplanet.ca. Welcome back. Every Canadian province, all 10 Canadian provinces, all three territories, had a perfectly fine pandemic preparedness plan in place before COVID, prior to 2020. Ontario had one going back to 2013. British Columbia 2014, Alberta 2014, Newfoundland going back to 2007, New Brunswick 2006, Nova Scotia 2013, Nunavut. How do they compare these pandemic plans we had in place prior to COVID? How do they compare to our actual pandemic response today? David Redman is a retired Canadian military lieutenant colonel, the former head of the Alberta Emergency Management Agency and a senior fellow at Frontier Centre for Public Policy. David, welcome. How are you? I'm outstanding. How about yourself? We're all hanging in as best we can. When you were the uh, head of the Alberta Emergency Management Agency, what was your responsibility? 
As the head of an emergency management agency, you're responsible for looking at all hazards that might affect a province and for developing a uh, an intelligence system to monitor any and all hazards and then to develop plans uh, that will address each of the hazards that are applicable to your province or territory. What led to all of these provinces suddenly enacting these pandemic plans? Was it in reaction to SARS from 2003? No. What what happens in in every jurisdiction in Canada is, as I say, you monitor the hazards. So I was the head of uh, EMA back in 2004, 2005. It's a regular and ongoing process. So for instance, you see that the Alberta plan is dated to 2014. But back in um, 2005, we did the update of the plan. So these emergency plans aren't just written and put on a shelf. They're updated every 10 years. Uh, Normally by law, it depends on each province what's required. But in Alberta, they were revitalized at least every 10 years. So what happened back in 2005, we had just been through a series of events in the province. But there was a new document released by WHO in 2005, which was the Non-Pharmaceutical interventions guidelines. And that caused Alberta to want to review its existing pandemic influenza plan. So we wrote an updated version in 2005, which after I retired was then updated again in 2014. So it's a regular ongoing process. And the purpose of those plans is so that when you're actually hit, for instance, in this case, by a pandemic, you have a pre-existing plan that you should draw out, look at the exact virus that's hit you, because these were generic for all types of viruses, look at the specifics of the virus that you're encountering, and it allows you to then very quickly tailor the plan, release it to the public in a full written format, and then to actually implement that plan step by step. And with all that pre-work done, it allows you to do correct decision-making right from the start, but with a full governance task force. Were these plans designed only to address things like public health and, let's say, health sector communications, outpatient care, immunization, or did they look at the society as a whole, the functioning of society as a whole? Let me use the Alberta plan as an example, and you can make your own determination. There was four goals overarching goals, the must-dos in the Alberta plan dated 2014. The first was to control the spread of the disease and reduce the illness by providing access to appropriate prevention measures, care, and treatment. That's goal number one. Goal number two, mitigate societal disruption in Alberta through ensuring the continuity of all critical services. Number three, minimizing the adverse economic impacts of the virus. And number four, supporting an effective and efficient use of all resources. I put it to you that we've done exactly the opposite and have not met one of those four goals because we obviously threw the plans away. Uh, Prevention, we did nothing. Mitigate societal disruption, we did the exact opposite. Minimize economic impact, we did the exact opposite. That's a big fail. The pandemic plan, as far as Alberta goes... I mean, some of the key elements here, prevention of a pandemic, mitigate social disruption, minimize economic impact. Let's just look at these first three. I mean, what happened between 2014, in your estimation, and 2020? Did they did they throw that one out the window and start from scratch? Was it the fog of war? Did they, lo- they lost the thread? What happened, David? I believe that... Uh... In February and March of 2020, we knew exactly who was most at risk from COVID. It was our seniors over the age of 60 with severe and multiple comorbidities. In fact, 
we saw worldwide that 95% of all deaths up to the middle of March 2020 were in seniors with severe comorbidities. So instead of protecting our seniors, which should have been our number one aim, and not using non-pharmaceutical interventions, as had been clearly stated in our plans, we did exactly the opposite. And that was because our premiers took one look at what was happening in China and Italy, and they panicked. They forgot they had pre-written plans or chose to ignore them and place the medical officers of health in charge. You should never do that. The medical officer of health had one task and one task only, which was to try and run a proper healthcare system. And our aim in March of 2020, instead of being to minimize the impact of COVID-19 on the province, became to minimize the impact of COVID-19 on the healthcare system. A completely wrong aim, putting the doctors in charge, became the only aim. As the former head of the emergency management agency in Alberta, you must have been having fits when you saw the way Premier Kenny and other premiers were behaving through this pandemic. Did you have anyone's ear at that time? I was completely dumbfounded by what they did. I gave them two weeks in March to dig their way out of the mistake they'd made made by using non-pharmaceutical interventions for a type of virus that they had no effect on other than extremely negative. And then I started writing. I wrote all 13 premiers. I wrote them 12 letters over 12 months begging them to give me a two-hour call to step back from what they were doing or to at least let another voice into their office to explain why the use of non-pharmaceutical interventions are A, not effective, but B, extremely And we've seen results of that. But we knew that in September of 2019, who had just updated every five years the document on non-pharmaceutical interventions that we had first used back in 2005. It was very clear that for this type of virus, you should not use what we now call lockdowns, which is in fact a broad sweep of non-pharmaceutical interventions. So I to try to stop and listen to somebody with a completely different point of view. When they ignored me for 12 straight months, and that's 13 out of 13 premiers, I wrote a position paper, which you can find on Frontier Center for Public Policy, which I published on the 1st of July, Canada's deadly response to COVID-19, in which I state that it is criminal negligence what we have done by our premiers, MOH, and the Prime Minister. That was my next question. I was going to I was going to ask about criminal negligence. You know, we can excuse maybe perhaps some panic for the first couple of weeks, but not after 22 months. So panic no longer explains it. Absolutely correct. Well, I've been talking about a reckoning that must happen after all, when we finally crawl out from under this mess. There must be a reckoning. I don't know what you want to call it, a truth and reconciliation panel or criminal proceedings. I don't know. But what is the the remedy after, you know, I remember when after SARS and the doctor said, we learned so much from this and the politicians, we learned so much. And when we first heard about SARS-CoV-2, they said, that's all right. We got this. We learned so much from SARS. They learned nothing, obviously. But what is your remedy after we finally get out from under this? What should be the reckoning? It's going to take a while because the first thing we need to do is walk back the fear. As an officer in the Army and then as the head of EMA, I knew you never, ever use fear 
as a motivator in any type of emergency. And yet our politicians in MOH have used fear as the only tool in their toolbox. They have driven into the minds of all Canadians that, number one, lockdowns work. And they do exactly the opposite. They kill at least 10 times as many. In most studies, it's 100 times as many as any COVID deaths could ever have occurred. But number two, they also have inbred into Canadians that the only way out of this pandemic is with vaccines. Both those statements, lockdowns work and vaccines are the only way out, are two categoric mistruths. We need to walk back the mass formation, which has happened to our Canadian public, which is now more terrified of a disease, which for people under 60 is less risk than seasonal influenza. I'll say that again. For people under 60 without a severe comorbidities, comorbidities, this virus is less deadly than seasonal influenza. And Canadian statistics prove it, world statistics prove it, study after study after study. And yet, if you ask Canadians, they believe that COVID will kill them in a heartbeat if they don't lock down and if they don't wait for a vaccine to save them. David, if there is ever, well, there will be. It's not a question of if, it's when. The next time it rolls around, if you're not too beaten down and and frustrated, I I pray that you or someone like-minded will be in charge of the uh, the pandemic response the next time. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. David Redmond. Have you subscribed to my newsletter yet? It's fast, easy, and absolutely free. Just go to my website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and then click on subscribe. All I need is your email address, and that's it. Then, once a month, you'll receive my newsletter, Inner Sanctum, in your email inbox. The Inner Sanctum contains a monthly brief, a column of my analysis of the news and opinions. There's a This Month in UFO or Conspiracy History, a look ahead to an upcoming episode of this radio program, a book club, my podcast pick of the month, a spotlight on a previous guest, and much more. Join the Strange Planet community by signing up for your free subscription to Inner Sanctum. Again, Go to strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and click on subscribe. It's a strange planet. Read all about it.